0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here. And uh, today I get the privilege of wrapping up a message that Jason kicked off at the beginning of January called Pack Your Bags. And the whole concept of this series is wrapped around this idea that as you move into this year, that what if we could step into this year and arrive at the end of 2018 and instead of having a year filled with regrets, we have a year filled with results. We have relationships that we desire to see we have impact in our finances that we've always longed for that that who we are as a person is is even better than we've ever imagined if you uh, are kind of a fan of Seinfeld there's this episode in Seinfeld where George Costanza has this this opposite kind of day he just does the exact opposite of everything he normally does and it's like by the end of the block his life is transformed and it's like, how do we take, well, even in that kind of um, humorous moment, how do we take that and apply our lives with that kind of mindset? And so we kicked off this, um, a couple of weeks ago, I kicked off my portion of the series with this idea that the key, right, if you want to genuinely have a reset and see results this year, it begins with your mindset. That the mindset is the crucial component to starting and moving into this year and having a year filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. And that the, the heart of that mindset, that kind of reset we need to make, is to have a mindset of responsibility. And if you were here, uh, I used this uh, story that's found in the book of Proverbs to set the stage. And I actually want to go back to that same story today, because it's in that story that we began this journey, and I want to end that journey because there was so much jam-packed in just a short few verses. Uh, I'm a pretty avid reader. I'm sort of a nerd, and you probably, if you attend here regularly, you pick up on that. I um, I don't have the body of an athlete, but I'd like to think I have the mind of one, right? And so, um, one of the things I do typically is as I deep dive, I just, I'll read five or six books around one central idea, so I feel like I have some kind of basis of understanding. And um, for whatever reason, I picked Amazon. And um, so I've been reading about Amazon. And there's this story about Amazon that was really fascinating to me. It, it happens early in the story of Amazon. Jeff Bezos, who uh, becomes the founder, he's now actually the wealthiest human on planet Earth. Um, congratulations to him. We can't relate to your struggle. And, um, and so he is this, um, like, almost 100 billion, with a B, uh, millionaire, billionaire kind of guy. He's got that going on. And so he begins, though, right after college, he graduates and he starts working at a Wall Street investment firm. And he's a bit of a techie, and so he's working at kind of a unique firm that's uh, studying this thing called the World Wide Web, because it's just getting started. And this firm is making bets and creating businesses around this idea of the internet, because they think the internet's going to be a big deal. This is before AOL. This is before the all the weird noises called dial-up that would happen, right? And one of, one, at one point, while he's sitting there at his desk, he has this idea of what if you created a store on the internet that sold books? And so he decides he's going to leave his very lucrative six-figure job on Wall Street to go set out and create something that most people have not even interacted with called the internet. He's going to create a store on it. So he steps out and he comes back to his boss and he says, hey, I have this idea, um, I'm going to call it Relentless or Cadabra or, you know, something. It's this kind of a playoff of Abracadabra because the internet was so magical. And so he's like, I've got this idea for a bookstore. And his boss is like, Jeff, you're really sharp. You've got a future here. I can see you making money and making a contribution, but Jeff, Cadabra." an internet bookstore? Like who's going to buy anything from that? Don't throw your career away for something as silly as an internet bookstore. And it shook Jeff. He steps back and his boss says, I'll give you three days to think about it. I'm I'm not going to accept your resignation because I think this is kind of a foolish decision. Jeff steps back, He spends three days processing, and he comes to this point of decision, and it's in this moment of decision that I think he stumbles into blindly a biblical framework for making a decision and to valuing your time. What he does is he pulls himself out of the moment. He actually creates a spreadsheet for it. We don't have to do that, but he creates a spreadsheet, and he's reflecting, and he's thinking about himself when he's 80. And he's looking back over the course of his life, and he's weighing the two paths in front of him. There is the Wall Street investment firm, make six figures, maybe seven figures one day, or there's step out, risk it all, and try to start this internet bookstore. And he said that what was so stressful for him in that moment, sitting across the park bench from his boss, was no longer stressful when he viewed his life from 80 years looking back. He's like, of of course. I want to step out and create the bookstore. And it's that moment that serves as the catalyst for what becomes known as Amazon. Something that sells far more than books. Something that I think has probably worked out with him and for him pretty decently, right? Many of us wish we had met Jeff right after and said, hey, I'll give you a little bit of money, I'll invest. Because it was one of the most lucrative investments we could have made in the last 20, 30 years. And what Jeff Bezos does, I think, is actually discover something that Solomon, one of the wisest men who's ever lived, the writer of multiple books in the Old Testament, had already laid out for us in the book of Proverbs. What Jeff discovers out of his Ivy League education had been sitting in the Bible for thousands of years. And it's this, that there is a way of seeing time that is different than most of us are used to. That there is a way that Solomon seeks to train his children to think about time that I think can have profound impact on your life and my life. In fact, if you and I would shift the way we view time and move to this vantage point, what we would discover is not just a year of results, but a lifetime of results and no regrets. And to do that, I want to take you back to the ant and the sluggard which is something we talked about a few weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 6. This remember that the book of Proverbs is a parenting book. It was a book designed to prepare his children for royalty and for leadership of a nation. So how do you prepare your kids not just to become an adult but to become future leaders of a nation? That's what the book of Proverbs was designed for. So it's loaded with really practical insights and wisdom. It's one of my favorite books in fact. I read from it regularly because it's just loaded with so much practical life application. And one of the things that Solomon does, is because this was originally kind of presented to his children, uh, Solomon tends to use uh, silly characters. He creates these stereotypes um, to make a point. He uses natural kind of things that the kids would have seen in the course of everyday life. And so one of the things he does is he creates this character known as the sluggard. And we talked about him a few weeks ago. And he uses an ant, which is something that every kid has seen because kids tend to pay attention to what's on the ground around them. Most of us just kind of walk through it as adults. And so what happens is that Solomon uses this tension and he tells him this story. And as Kelly referenced earlier, uh, you can find the passages from today in the message notes, and I want to read it for you. It says, "Go to the ant, you sluggard." Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity. Like an armed man. One of the things I love about this is that, remember, this is for the kids. They're hearing this and this idea of a, a sluggard, this individual who's not really driven, who's kind of drifting through life, sitting down and watching ants run around on the ground. And that out of this moment is this profound wisdom. And out of this moment, actually, is a way of viewing time. Because the sluggard and the ant see time. Differently, and they spell it differently too. And so, what I've done for today is I want to work our way through this passage. And there's four things that I've seen um, out of studying this. That I think will be really useful for you. Four distinct elements, four ways of seeing time that the ant has that the slugger didn't. And because I wanted to make it kind of instantly sticky for you in your mind, I turned it into an acrostic. I want to spell out the word time. And uh, the first first point I would kind of point to is the letter T. And it's that the sluggard's desire, if you notice, right, when you finally see the sluggard, what is he asking for? He says a little more sleep, a little more slumber. He's hitting his snooze button, isn't he? Which, nine minutes, is anybody else confused by that? Like, why nine minutes? It's like the worst thing ever. I'm sorry, I'm still, I have a deep passion about nine minutes being the worst invention ever for snooze. But regardless, he keeps hitting it, nine minutes at a time, right? It's a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. You see, the sluggard treats time like it's trivial. It's flippant, snooze it away a little at a time, snooze, and nine minutes here, nine minutes there, but the ant's different. The ant doesn't treat time like it's trivial. He's not flippant with it. The ant treasures time, and that's the first T. That's the, the first letter in this acrostic is that if you and I are going to experience and begin to change the way we view time, it begins with us treasuring it, The ant understood something about time that I think for many of us we can miss is that time is the only limited resource, period. You can declare bankruptcy and have no money and still come back from it. But there is no court in the world where you can walk in and declare time bankruptcy and get it back. There's no court. Land, I remember growing up, you'd hear these older kind of individuals tell you how to invest your money, and they would say, oh, you invest in land, there's no more being made. But you and I have flown in and out of airports. We've walked the city of Boston, which historically, a vast majority of the back bay did not exist at all. It was water. There are cities around the world, Dubai, and regions where... Land has been created out of nothing, out of water. Land actually isn't a limited resource. Money isn't a limited resource. It may be a limited resource for you in this moment, right? And you feel that pressure. But I'm always amazed when I get into a car with an Uber driver or a Lyft and I start talking and kind of hearing their story, and it's always a side hustle for them. It's something they're doing on the side. It's like, oh, this is my lunch break, so I'm working right now because I needed to make some extra money that the, the ant understood that time, while it may feel like it has so much of it, is actually the only limited resource. And when you realize that time is the only thing that you can't get more of, when, when you have that shift in your mind, you start to treasure it. My six-year-old last night, kind of confession, rebuked me. We uh, were leaving uh, this afternoon. We're going on a vacation for a week, and so we're kind of doing what many of you do when you're getting ready to go on a trip. You're kind of scrambling. You're trying to get things packed. And I don't know about you, but I'm always a last minute person. I'm like, okay, if I got enough underwear, I'll figure it out. Like that's pretty much all I need. And so I tend to kind of just, uh, I'll take care of it later. And so it was last night and we just eaten dinner and I'm trying to finalize all these other things. And I'm like, oh, I'll sit down at the table and we're playing a board game um, because our family likes that kind of stuff. And we're playing this board game and I'm trying to like multitask and trying to do this other stuff to prepare for the trip. And my six-year-old little girl sitting across the table looks at me and just says, Daddy, it seems to me that you're not even really at this table and like not even playing because you're so focused on the computer that you don't even see what's going on in front of you. And I'm like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, wow. I was like, well, baby girl, I'm trying to get us set up because we're leaving tomorrow to go on this trip. And she's like, daddy, like you could do that when I go to sleep. (laughs) Right now it's family time. And I was like, yes, ma'am. Right. I mean, I I loved it. I mean, I'm getting reminded from a six-year-old of how valuable the time I had in front of her was. And in that moment, like there's this like, deeply emotional moving part of me that's like, she's not a six-year-old, she's that like, 30-year-old who's like, don't miss this. And I'm so grateful for it because she was exactly right. I could have done all that other stuff when she went to bed. But when she's asleep, I don't get quality time with her. And I think when you realize that time is ticking away constantly, It's the only limited resource you have. You start to treasure it and hold it valuable. And here's a question I would just ask you to hold in your mind. If time is the most valuable asset that you have, where are you poorly investing it? If time, right? People talk about retirement and money and where to allocate their funds and how to kind of which stocks to invest in and should I buy this and sell this? But if time is the most valuable asset you have, where are you allocating it? Where are you investing it? And is there any area in your life where you're maybe investing it unwisely? But fortunately for us, the ant does not just tell us or teach us that time is a treasure. The ant also in this passage shows us how to treasure it. And in the rest of spelling out the word time, we will begin to see not just that it is a treasure, but also how to treasure it. Uh, We go on and you see that there is this tension again. There's the ant who is storing food for the winter. storing its provisions. And then on the other side, there's the really gifted snoozer. Just a little bit more time. And while the ant is moving and working and, and being driven to do one thing, the sluggard is doing the exact opposite. And what happens is you see this tension come up. You see the ant driven by one thing while the sluggard is driven by the other. Sluggard sluggard is driven by urgency. The most important thing in its life, the most important feeling and pressure point it has is more sleep. That's the urgency. Oh, just a little bit more sleep. And I can relate. No, No amount of good intentions takes away that desire to sleep a little bit longer in the morning. It's urgent. It's there. But the ant isn't responding to urgency. The ant is responding to what's important. Winter, winter's not urgent. You store for winter as an ant long before winter ever shows up. It's not urgent at all, but it is important. And it's important. That's the I. That when you start to shift your mindset, you start to treasure time by viewing it through the lens of its importancy, what's important to be accomplished, not what's urgent. Um, Operation Overlord is one of the most famous military exercises in human history. It involved over 150,000 soldiers, 4,000 ships, over 11,000 airplanes, all centered around a small section of beach in Normandy. And yet, that small little section of beach with all of those resources took months to prepare. And the person who did the planning, the person who oversaw that, the supreme commander Commander of Operation Overlord, which, by the way, would be the most epic business card ever, right? Nice to meet you. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the supreme commander of Operation Overlord. Like, that's what I'm talking about. But for him, it wasn't exactly epic. It was incredibly stressful. He had high blood pressure, he, um, he was not sleeping, he was constantly anxious and stressed. Uh, it was said that the supreme commander of Operation Overlord, consisted. his diet consisted of two things, coffee and cigarettes. And at the height of Operation Overlord, he was smoking four packs a day, which is insane. And that this general, known as Dwight D. Eisenhower, ultimately leads and prepares our nation for the turning point in World War II. It is not an understatement to say that we would be in a different place in our world today had it not been for Operation Overlord being successful. It was an incredibly important battle. And what guided General Eisenhower and ultimately to become the 34th president of our United States is a way that he understood time. He actually adopted this mindset uh, of the the tension between importance and urgency. In fact, Eisenhower was greatly shaped by the Book of Proverbs, this importance and urgency tension. He would actually use as a way of making his decisions. It became known as the Eisenhower Matrix later down the road, and then kind of entered in a lot of the, the business world through Stephen Covey when he introduced it as the Four Quadrants, and this kind of the this breakdown of the four quadrants is this. I actually have a, a picture of it. So how do you live your life and treasure time and understand it's important? Well, you have this four quadrant grid. The first quadrant is important and urgent tasks. There are things that are really important and really urgent. And those things, right, that do first column up there is what you should do first. It's the things in your life. There are deadlines, whether it's certain important work deadlines or tax deadlines or it's an emergency. That's what gets all of your focus and your attention. There's the second quadrant, right? It's important, but it's not urgent. And those are the things you have to intentionally schedule, Those are things like family time and exercise and reading and and planning ahead, whether that's professionally or personally. That's car and home maintenance. That's those kind of objects. And those things, you put them on your calendar. And this this is how Eisenhower worked through to plan and handle his world when the world was on his shoulders. He would sit down and he would put everything that was pressing into his life into one of these four quadrants. The third one, which was really urgent but not that important, He would delegate. And most of us, this is one of the ditches we fall into. Emails, most emails, not all emails, but most emails are this. They're urgent, but they're not really that important. Oftentimes, emails are how people shift their work onto you, and then you shift it back onto them. It's this little bit of ping pong that we play. And and it feels very urgent. It dings, your computer pops up a notification, but in the end, most of them aren't that important. Most phone calls or text messages are this. It's not life or death, it's just urgent. It's, for some of you, the coworker who comes sliding up to your cube or knocking on the door to do nothing but to chat and to catch up. Right? That's really urgent but not that important. And what you do with those is you delegate them. You, you figure out how to get them off of your plate onto someone else's. And then the fourth one, which is the most dangerous place where it's so easy to fall into, is the not important and the not urgent. And that's the, what these writers would have called things like most of the television shows we watch. All right, this just gets really personal. Most social media, most mindless web clicking and article reading. And that, according to at least the authors that I read who've processed through this, this is how they break down our time quadrant. And regardless of how you value and what you value and the things that are important to you in your life, this tool is really helpful. Because without this kind of framework, what, what will happen is if we're not treasuring time and we're, we don't have an importance versus urgency filter, then what happens is we live lives that are busy. We've got a lot of things going on. But this tool actually helps us live life better, which in the end, I think, is what most of us want. I don't want to be busy. I want my life to be better. I want those relationships I have to be better. And continuing through, not just that we treasure time and how do we treasure it is important. There's, there's this additional component that the ant and the sluggard have the ant Right? You see that it stores provision, but then it also, it gathers its food at harvest. This is this phrase that jumped out at me. that I think the ant recognized when it was harvest time. The sluggard didn't. The sluggard we see staying in the bed, rolling back and forth, sleeping his life away. And here's the critical point. I think what's different is that the ant measures time differently than the sluggard. M- The sluggard thought all time was created equal. The ant realized it isn't. If you've ever waited on public transit, you intuitively get this. One minute can make the difference between catching your train or bus or standing there waiting for the next one. That not all time is created equal. The ant understood that. That rhythms and seasons and stages are built into the very fabric of nature and life itself. And that while all time moves at the speed of one minute per 60 seconds, it is not all equally as valuable. There is some stages and ages and seasons and rhythms where it requires something different. And the ant shows up at those crucial times. The ant knows its harvest. You can't harvest a field three months after harvest is done. Sincerity doesn't make seeds sprout into fruit overnight. You show up. And, and many of us kind of understand that. I, I, have, I know some of us are accountants, and you recognize, and some of you have said, like, you, you get into this season from January to April, and it is That season for you, your work requirements are ratcheted up. You're spending a ton more time doing certain things. As a pastor, you're probably not surprised. Easter and Christmas are those kind of seasons for me. Like for Tom Brady, right? Next Sunday when we win, right? Yes. He will show up for that game understanding that those 60 minutes on the clock are different than his sixty-minute drive in the car, right? He's going to show up because he recognizes that not all time is created equally. The ancients understood this. And I loved it. Even they had two separate words. They had the word Chronos, which was the word for time, and that was the movement of time. It's where we get our um, the word chronology, right? The passing of time. But then the ancients, the Greeks, had another idea of time, and it was called Kairos. And Kairos was actually the, the Greek god of opportunity. And the way that the, the Greeks thought about time is that Kairos would come running up beside you. And he had this sweet golden front mullet. You know what a mullet is, right? It's like, it's typically like business up front, party in the back. Well, Kairos had it reversed around, it was the parties up front and all business in the back. And this idea was that Kairos would come running up to you and that you had to seize the moment. You had to grab the opportunity. That that verbiage in our vocabulary is rooted in this imagery. Grabbing hold of the moment. Because if not, the business in the back, when Kairos passed you by, you couldn't grab hold of him. And so that's why the mullet kind of hung right here in the front, and you had to grab hold of it to catch Kairos. And the, the ancients understood that. And the aunt did too. And this is one of these critical things that oftentimes as a pastor, when I sit down with people, this is the, the one that, that presses into their life. This is the one that presses into their regrets. Because they made choices that took them away from seasons that were unique. I was having... Uh, I was sitting down with someone just recently, and we're talking about their divorce and how they wish they could go back and do what they did, what they know now then because it wouldn't have happened. The same activities at a different place would have changed the whole thing. Some of us grew up in households where had we had that parent in our life, had they been able to step into the season of our childhood, things might have looked differently. We all, this is the place where regret is often born. We think the job requires me to be there 70 hours a week, every single week, but my wife or my husband, they'll still be at home. Or my kids, they'll eventually figure it out. This is important. And the challenge that we have to deal with is we learn from the ant in realizing that we have to measure time differently. And that ultimately, a lot of this is born out of your values and your passions and the people around you and the stages and the ages. There are things, I'm not saying this is for you, this is, time is so deeply personal. There are things I do not do in this stage because of my daughter. Period. I had a mentor who looked at me and said they were kind of sharing his life and how he kind of navigated raising um, his children and he said there was a point Early on, I had a lot of passions that were personal passions, and I, I gave them up because I realized I was going into a season with my kids that what they needed from me was not my passions away from them, but my passion for them. And then I gave them that. And then eventually, later on, I invited them into the passions I had, and it became our passion together. And that never left me. That stuck deep. And so there are things and seasons and stages where our family goes through difficult times. And I'm choosing to sacrifice other things on the side because what they need most importantly is me present. Because I recognize what I got a long time ago is that there's going to be a day where my little girl does not want to dance with me. She's not going to want to talk with me unless I've taken advantage of it right now. And to do those things in those seasons and rhythms and stages. I can't pretend to know what stage or season you're in, but you do. And it's worth reflecting on that first question I asked you to hold intention in your mind. If time is the most valuable resource, where are you allocating it unwisely? That, That question, when you pass this next one through it, of what stage, season, rhythm are you in in your job? In your marriage, in your family, in this particular like stage of life, like where are you right now? And in light of where you are and where you want to go, and what you want to experience, and what you want to have—the relationships you want to have, the finances you want to have, right—the faith that you want to have—where should or could you invest that time? For me, this this message was really tricky because there's this is probably my deepest passion. This is the thing that defined my life is how I view time because of some things that happened to me early on. And even preparing for this message, the tension is is that so much of this is born out of our personal value set. What you value and what I value are different. And because of certain values you have, because of certain values I have, you will make decisions that I wouldn't make. And that's okay But what's important is that you have a good understanding of what it is that's most important to you. And that you begin to spell time out through that lens, which is why the most important letter is the letter E. And this is where it all comes together. So it's treasure. It's important. You measure it. But the last one, the most critical one, it's the one thing the ant has that the slugger doesn't, and it's that the ant had an end in mind. The ant got it. The ant recognized that there was going to be winter and it would need to take the harvest and store the food. But what's the warning? You see that all of this story has been set up to, for the last verse in verse 11 when it says, uh, and well, in verse like 9 you get these questions because this is a point being made. And in verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. This idea that the sluggard made choices without the end in mind. Sluggard didn't realize that a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there would mean he would end up in the end without a lot at all. And it was this lack of perspective about the end that ultimately would ruin the sluggard's life. The sluggard, we finish and we see him only surviving, barely, Where the ant, we see thriving, even in seasons where thriving isn't normal. And the reason is because the ant had the end in mind where the sluggard didn't. And if you get this right, if you get this idea right, this changes your entire life. If you, like Jeff Bezos, see the end of your life looking back, and if you get that kind of perspective, all of a sudden, it starts to shift and change the things that you do. I talked about my daughter rebuking me. I was so grateful for it. And you know why? It's because she's growing up in an environment where we've been intentional about creating this kind of culture in our family. Because here's my end game. I'm just going to confess. I, like, for me as a parent, my win is when my daughter is in her 30s and her best guy friend is me. I'm not even joking. When my little girl is no longer a little girl and she's a grown woman, I want to be the guy she still calls to get advice from. I want to be the guy that she still calls to go to coffee with. I want that desperately. I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm not ashamed by that. That's my end game and that's my end goal. That's what I'm headed for. And when I stood at the altar and I looked at this incredibly beautiful woman named Virginia Stratford Owens. And I got to read my vows to her. The line that I wrote in my vows that captured the heartbeat of our marriage was that I will love you and lead you and be and serve you. And to the day your hand slips out of mine into his for all eternity. That's what I live my marriage through the lens of. And that's those two things. They shaped how I make my decisions because I already know how I want my parenting to play out. I know how I want my marriage to play out. It's one of the reasons I recognize I could have an affair. I realize I could be the worst dad on planet earth because no one ever sets out to do either one of those. And people do it every single day. And it's why I don't, I live my life like an open book. I don't delete text messages. My wife has my passwords. I don't have anything hidden in my life. And the reason why is because if I have nothing to hide, I have nothing to hide. And it keeps our marriage healthy because there's no little dark shadow spaces where I'm spending my time outside of the end in mind. And I'm not saying you've got to do all this, but I'm just saying that you have to have that kind of clarity about the end in mind because then it will start to shape how you make your decisions as you go through time. That I have sacrificed certain passions and things that I would love to do, but I recognize that if I want that rich relationship with my daughter and my wife, Then it requires me to be showing up present today. And so here's my question for you. Where do you wanna end up? Chances are you already know. Chances are you already have an idea about what you wanna see in your life. But the question is, is are you shaping your time to get you there? When I started message prep for this series, about a month ago or a few weeks ago for this particular message, I wrote down this line that was like, oh, that's really profound and simple, but it's been, it's been haunting me. And it was this line, um, really simple line, that if you want to see your future, look at your calendar. And it's just this realization that like anything that I want down the road better be starting to show up in my calendar today. That unless it's present on my schedule this week, it will never show up next month. It'll never show up next year. And that as we wrap up this series and we move into some really exciting things over the course of this year, as we set the stage for it, where in your life, in light of where you want to end up, are you spending your time? Where are you investing it? And is there anywhere in your life right now that in light of where you want to go, You're investing it unwisely. And I'll tell you this if we grab hold of that and we do the hard and honest work of answering it, you and I will arrive at the end of this year different than how we started it. Let's pray.